Hi everyone, I'm Ben Tapper and this is Invisible Truths. This is a podcast for anyone who carries burdens that feel too heavy to bear, questions too vulnerable to openly discuss, or pain that you're certain no one else will understand. Even more than that though, this is a space to acknowledge and explore the invisible truths within each of us. If you're still interested, let's get started. everyone. Welcome back to another week of the Invisible Truths podcast. I'm your host, Ben Tapper, and I'm here this week with a good friend uh, and brother from another mother, Josh Riddick. Um, Josh is the founder of Growing Edge Consulting, which is a consulting agency that specializes in racial equity consulting for congregations and nonprofits. Um, So I'm thrilled to have Josh on the podcast this week. Welcome, sir. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Friend of the show. Uh, First time, long time. Excited to be here. (laughs) Friend of the show. (laughs) Okay, on that level now, we got friends out here. Uh, um, And so one of the many reasons I'm excited to talk about or to talk with Josh, <laughs> to talk about Josh. You can talk about me. That's fine. <laughs> One of the reasons I'm excited to talk with Josh is because we share uh, not only a passion for racial justice and a uh, fiery spirit when it comes to talking about these things, um, we also do consulting work together, and we are also both biracial men. And so uh, we have a unique way in which we move through the world and navigate our racial identity. And so it's, it's always fun for me to get to talk with someone else that shares that component of their life and to hear how they experience it and how it informs uh, the way they live, their relationships, and the work that they do. And so that's what we're going to start unpacking today. Who knows where else we'll go, but that's where we're going to start. So I'm going to kick things off with uh, the first question, which is, when did you realize or except that you were black? Yeah, I, th- I think that's a really interesting question. Um, I've heard that a lot in various interviews, and uh, I, th- I think it's fascinating because people's answers generally are when they first experience some amount of trauma around their racial identity. Um, and I don't know if that's when I first recognize it uh, within myself. I think a a more robust answer I could give is if the question, not to say your question's bad, but the question is, when did you realize what blackness meant? Mm. Because psychologists identify at two and three years old, kids can tell the difference in color and race and what that means for people to some degree. And growing up in a biracial family and mostly white, uh, on my white side of the family, on my Anglo side of the family and, and German and Irish side of the family, I was keenly aware that I was different. Um, but I didn't assign any sort of negative value to that. And I didn't seek to aspire to any aesthetics that they had created. Um, Certainly ways in which values and norms were projected onto me and within my family, absolutely a reality. Um, But I did really struggle for some period of time in my life with this idea of what exactly is blackness um, and what that means to hold that and carry that. I learned a lot at a very young age the, the dangers of what it means to be a biracial person, what it means to be a black person. Um, and before my parents split up, there was always stories of the, the experiences they had as an interracial couple. Um, but those stories were always leveled and framed in a way that it wasn't my dad's blackness that was the problem. It was the fact that my dad being black and my mom being white were together. So their union as opposed to his blackness were the issue. Um, I think both factors played into some of the experiences they had. But because of that, I, I grew up uh, embodying this understanding on some level um, uh, that blackness wasn't exclusively problematic. Uh, 
Uh, and I know a lot of people have, a lot of biracial people experience that. Um, on the other hand, I'm not really sure I grew up with a robust and clear definition of what blackness was and how to hold on to that for myself and how to identify with that. Um, I, I remember keenly uh, going into middle school and coming home from, from classes at, at the end of the day and flipping on 106 in Park to see the top 10 music videos and just wanting to mirror uh, the people I saw in those music videos because I thought that's what blackness meant. Um, and I didn't have anyone around me really shaping that in a way that said that, yeah, that's blackness, but also so is this. I was looking for some sort of monolithic experience. Um, so the question to me is just a weird one that I've had to wrestle with that um, I've always known that I'm black, but I haven't always known what that's meant. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And I resonate pretty deeply with that. For me, my adoptive parents, who were both white, always let us know that once we got out into the world, their world would have problems or could have problems with us and with our skin color, even if we didn't experience those problems in the home. And so I, too, had this understanding that... I was biracial or I was black, but I didn't have any meaning or value associated with that. I didn't have any source of information about black culture. I wasn't connected with my black family. And so that part of my identity really went underdeveloped or, or completely undeveloped until I hit my early to mid 20s and I started actively trying to wrestle with that question, what does my blackness mean? And I also started wrestling with the question of, of how do I identify? which built into that question is also the question of, am I black enough, right? Like, is there a certain waterline at which, okay, you can claim to be black, but if you don't quite meet it, you are inauthentic to claim that, right? Or uh, said another way, how dark does your skin have to be before you can say the N-word? You know, like, <laughs> uh, like, you know, so it's just this inherent question of, am I enough that, that I continue to carry? And I learned fairly early and then it was reinforced later through some discriminatory experiences that I could never be white, right? That was never going to be an option. Mm -hmm. At the same time, I didn't feel like I could fully be black. I didn't feel like I was accepted by my black peers. I didn't feel like I talked like them, dressed like them, had the same sense of culture. And so it just felt like I was wandering in some sort of no man's land. And so I'm wondering if you to ever experienced that, that no man's land? And if mm -hmm. so, how you navigated it? And if not, mm. how you think you managed to avoid it? Yeah, I think I have to varying degrees, um, but I think it's also important for me to name that uh, I think where a lot of people's deep socializing happens is in a school or educational space, um, you know, before you're an adult. And most of my educational spaces were in predominantly white organizations or institutions. Um, and so there was absolutely this struggle to claim enough blackness. And the goalposts were always moving for me, which is what made the, the process so difficult. Um, there was a handful of black kids in my high school and by my middle school. And I remember one of them, he lived up the street from me. We both lived in a different city. Um, we both were black in an all-white school. We both lived in a very urban context in a very rural school system that we, uh, you know, through school of choice, um, went to, which is a whole different conversation. Um, you know, the, one of the few educational decisions that I wish I actually can reshape is that one. Um, but him and I end up at this very rural school. Uh, he is an adoptive child of a uh, Latinx family. Um, 
and and I remember passing him one day, I think my sophomore or freshman year of high school, and he called me like some, you know, Hispanic name. Not like a slur, but it's like a, someone's name. Mm-hmm. And I, I was like, why did he call me that? And then a few other people started calling me that. And so I snatched him up in between classes. Like, hey, bro, like, wh- what's going on? Why are you calling me that? And he had stated that, um, you know, you are too smart to really be black. You got to be Latino, mm. right? And that was really uh, assaulting to me. Like, I got super pissed. Um, I almost fought the kid after school. Um, I didn't have the tools to recognize that he was carrying his own racial trauma mm-hmm. um, and recognize he would just, you know, oppress people, oppress people. And so he was operating out of that oppression. Um, you know, I remember going to school dances and being the best dancer in the room, mm. but not really. Be, I'm like, I'm not that good of a dancer. Like the bar was, <laughs> the bar was very low. Um, but there was moments in which my blackness was elevated and celebrated. Mm. And there was moments in which it was, oh, that can't be it. And so this this struggling and this wrestling of of what is enough was absolutely there. Um, And, you know, within my home, there was a level of respectability that was um, communicated and thought through and and implicitly and explicitly practiced. And so I I didn't really want to buy into that respectability. Like I said earlier, I I was really digging uh, the triple XLTs and baggy jean movement. Like that wasn't respectability, but it was blackness to me. But within my home, that really wasn't affirmed as blackness. Um, and so I, I really struggle with, with that idea of uh, who gets to define that blackness for me um, and at what point is not enough for me. Because I did have high intellect. I was skilled in school, um, at least in the system that they, they make you jump through. I, I got that job done well. But there were these messages of uh, blackness is not necessarily intelligence or intellect. Or how I talk was was not black. How I sound on the phone isn't black. And so those things like really attacked my identity and I found myself overcompensating in other areas or wanting to overcompensate. Um, or even within the privacy of my own self, um, finding ways to reaffirm that blackness and uh, in, in without realizing that the, the impact of that trauma what was doing to me. And so how did you navigate that? What were your markers to begin to own your blackness and to feel comfortable in however black manifested within you? Yeah. I mean, I, one thing, I think it's easy. It was a bit easier for me to do this because I'm a, I'm a male. You know, there, uh, much of this narrative is not mine to tell. It's my sister's, but her mm-hmm. experiences are radically different than mine. Um, everything from hair to tonality mm-hmm. as it relates to gender and the way in which we disparage black femininity uh, explicitly, implicitly in our society and our in our families and narratives and such, um, you know, really made it hard for her uh, in a way that I didn't have that same challenge. So it, I think compared to other biracial folks, I had it a bit easier. Um, two, I, I was connected to black folks uh, in some level. Uh, really, outside of that one individual in high school, I never struggled if like black people seen me and been like, yeah, you we know who you are. And really like what brought me to uh, that place of full claiming of my identity was my freshman year in college, enrolling in a, in a historically white institution, small liberal arts college, and ever so quickly being embraced by the black student population there. Mm. There was not a question of do I belong? There was not a question of who am I? It was, hey bro, you come with us, we about to go hoop, we're about to go listen to music. All the things that I identified with and enjoyed doing, they like to do. Mm. And things that I also didn't know were considered to be part of the black experience, 
they too had those experiences. Mm. Uh, you know, we go kick it over some anime, which is not exclusively black, uh, but like, oh, black people do get down with that, and that's, that's mm-hmm. okay. Mm-hmm. And realizing that there's not a monolith, I'm not looking for that, I don't need that, but who I am, uh, it isn't just based off appearance, but you know, the very identity that I hold was enough. And to have a community affirm that. It was a small pocket of that community, but just them affirming that was, was empowering to me. Yeah, I think you bring up a, a good point about not seeking the monolith, but still having those points of, of affirmation being really important. I remember my first or second week at the small liberal arts college I went to in Northeast Indiana. The black student union tried to get a hold of me and were encouraging me to join, and I actively resisted. I didn't want mm. any part of it. Because I didn't feel like I associated with them. If I'm being real, I was afraid of being judged. Like I I put my own, I externalized my own internal fears and inadequacies and put it on them and assumed they wouldn't accept me, right? Because that's the narrative I could tell myself rather than looking in and dealing with the fact that, no, this is really about me, what I can and can't accept about myself. And uh, thanks to my counselor, I'm learning that there are a lot of places in life that I have done that and continue to do that. So looking back, I can see that now, but back then I had no idea. I just, in my mind, I didn't feel like I fit with them, and I assumed they would reject me because I wasn't black enough. Um, But eventually that slowly began to change. And so I I think, I say that to say it's important to have markers and people and and pockets of community, especially when you're in predominantly white spaces. And I think this is something uh, a lot of... Caucasian and white folks don't necessarily understand and can't fully relate to because uh, they are almost always in spaces where people have the same skin color as them, right? Mm -hmm. Or spaces in which people have a similar cultural understanding as them, where they grew up watching Friends or Boy Meets World or or, or whatever, you know? Boy Um, Meets World is fire, though. No, for real, though. (laughs) (laughs) Sidebar. You throw Friends in the dumpster, (laughs) but you gotta keep Boy Meets World. Sidebar. I went back and started rewatching some of those episodes. They were dropping some serious truth on Boy Meets World. Like, wow. Stuff that I couldn't get with back then, but now I'm like, man, they don't make TV like this anymore. Mr. Feeney. Okay, anyway, I can go on (laughs) for a while. Uh, But the the point is, when you are not exposed, not made to feel as if you are different every second of the day, you're not aware even, I think, at how important it is to feel affirmed, to have those Mm -hmm. moments of commonality. Um, And so those have been really important to me. And actually, the more comfortable I get affirming my identity as a person of color, as a black man, the more important those pockets become and the harder it becomes to exist in spaces Mm -hmm. without them. Right, right, yeah. I I had this point uh, about a year and a half ago, I mean, my background is doing work in churches, and there was a a point a year and a half ago where I just had a couple of these experiences both within minority communities that I was learning from and listening to and observing, and then with connections I had on social media um, and just in some real-life mentors that I have, where these different points of clarity came together and I realized how much I had been looking for the things I was longing for in white institutions that had, what, had historically never shown that they were going to wake up and had no evidence that they actually wanted to make the adjustments. And this moment like hit me like a truck. I was like, I am really looking to find the things that I need as a person of color in predominantly white spaces for the sake of what? Like, why am I doing this to myself? 
Um, why am I not investing my why am I investing my energy trying to change a space that has historically been one direction instead of trying to go to a space or reimagine space in such a way that it can affirm who I am? I feel like so many people of color get caught up in that. It's part of the system white supremacy. It's part of the, the you know, the result of it. But yeah, that's a good word, man. It, it's I mean, it takes energy to reimagine. It takes a strength and a vision that I think sometimes is difficult to muster, you know, when all you're trying to do is to get through the day or, or, you know, you got so much going on in your personal life, you can't afford to even think about what you may or may not need at work or at school. Mm -hmm. And so um, I think it's, it's really hard to do that. And if you don't have a, a person in position of leadership over you, be it a dean, your boss, whomever, that is thinking about those things on your behalf, then it's so easy just to move through life and to not be exposed to those things or to, right. to be at a disadvantage um, because you don't you don't have them, uh, which is really, really unfortunate. And then to your point, you add on to that the complications of sexism or being a member of the LGBTQ community. Mm -hmm. And those are just additional layers that, that can complicate uh, or hinder one's experience of acceptance and belonging and owning their own identity. Right, right. And so, you know, you, uh, another point of commonality that we have is that uh, you are married to a white woman and y'all have a kid and Brooke and I are expecting our first child here in a mm -hmm. month or whenever. <laughs> you got me at this point, really. show up. <laughs> And so I, I wonder how uh, seeing your daughter kind of move and slowly grow, I know she's not that old right now, but, but as you navigate parenthood and mm -hmm. have thought about your identity, your wife's racial identity, and, and what identity your daughter might hold, mm -hmm. uh, how has that affected how you think about uh, identity making and identity mm -hmm. shaping in general? Man, so much, so much. I can't express enough like how much uh, preparing to have a child and then and, and as my wife gave birth to our child, um, what that did to the urgency of my psyche, hmm. what that did to quicken my own um, unpacking of my past, and what that did to uh, putting energy towards reimagining the future. Um, you know, I love my parents deeply. Uh, I'm thankful for the things and tools in which they gave me. Um, but I realize now that the dominant narrative of our family and our, our life was, was white. And there was moments and, and pockets in which blackness was celebrated and honored, but the you know the, the the dominant narrative was that of a white experience or expression um, within my home. And I've seen what that has done to me, um, and I've seen all the work I've had to go and unpack because of that. And so I think about my daughter is going to be even lighter than me, and have God knows what genetically with tonality and, and hair texture and what that will mean for her. I want nothing more, and I think you know any minority parent pers should pursue this if they're not already. Most do, and uh, I'm just getting hip to the game um, of how at home you have to uh, forge these identities because as they go into the world, regardless of whether the child is is biracial, multiracial, or not, the world is going to identify them in a particular way and shape them in a particular way. And so I want those narratives in my home to affirm and uphold the experience that my daughter's going to have. 
and also uphold and affirm the beauty and goodness of darker-skinned individuals as well. Because my daughter is going to be that light-skinned, potentially ethnically ambiguous girl, there are going to be ways in which she will be elevated um, and conditioned to disparage darker-skinned girls, or even darker-skinned women disparaging her because of her Mm -hmm. tonality. And I don't want her to have bitterness towards them, but grace and mercy um, and an understanding that uh, the oppression is impacting all of us. And so at home, I want to communicate these narratives from the books that are on our shelves, the characters that are in her books, the art that is on the wall, the movies, the music, anything she is consuming. I want to be black. I want to be elevating blackness and the beauty of it. Um, I want her to think critically on these matters. And I want to constantly affirm her blackness within our home and constantly affirm that blackness is deep and wide and it's not just a very minuscule spectrum that you see on TV, um, but it carries so much more weight to it. And the history of that and the narrative of that history that we actually carry, that she carries, that you know, we love gardening in our home and my white grandma loves gardening. I learned a lot from her. Mm-hmm. But I also can't ignore the fact that my granddad was a sharecropper. Yeah. And that too is important. I have a, a, a friend of mine uh, is, is a pastor in New York City, Rich Perez. Uh, shout out to Brother Rich. Um, he told me once this idea, you know, as a, as a believer, he identifies having Jesus in his heart. Mm-hmm. But he also says, I got Jesus in my heart and granddad in my bones. Mm. Um, mm. And I love that. Like We carry trauma with us from our ancestors and previous generations. Uh, we're continuing to unpack that. But we also carry some really beautiful narratives and truths and stories and, and experiences. Um, and it's really important for my daughter to understand that the only narrative that she subscribes to is not the white narrative, mm. even though many streams of her story come from those spaces. Man, that's so... F- the idea of having granddad in, in your bones resonates with me. I, I've been thinking some the last year, especially, about having the blood of the oppressed and the oppressor run mm. through my veins. Mm-hmm. And what that means for my identity how does that shape how i exist in the world you know i'm presumably carrying trauma not just that i've picked up in this lifetime but the trauma that my hungarian and english family carried and has passed down and the trauma that my west african family carried and has passed down and so i often wonder how that shows up how it makes me think about the identity that i'm holding and carrying and then what responsibilities i have to exist or not exist in the world in in certain ways and so this idea uh, of just being aware of our lineage and our genetics it's it's more than just fun facts right it it affects uh, how we move how we think how our emotions are perceived and experienced it affects things even down to the molecular level and so it's important to to be mindful of yeah absolutely i so ben you and i do these workshops where we do an exercise where people go through this this narrative poem. Uh, mm-hmm. It's a high school level deal. It's like a uh, mad lib, but not really funny. And people just have to unpack their story. Um, and white folks really struggle to get through it because so much of their stories they, they don't know. Uh, and they're not passed down. But their families react and move because of those stories, whether they're told or not. And you know, one of the things that's been fascinating is that I've done that exercise probably 40 times the last year. Um, in different workshop spaces and um, my white family I I think about my white family I cannot conjure the same responses as them um, 
you know, a lot of folks saying like, you know, my family was racist or bigoted or my family didn't talk about race, but my mom did, you know, X, Y, Z, something incredibly racist. Um, mm-hmm. And my family just doesn't, I, I, I don't know those narratives. I've asked, I've pursued them. Um, but one of the interesting components of my family lineage is that my white great-grandmother grew up in Mississippi. And, um, you know, she told me this story just kind of off rip one day at 14. She's just sitting by herself in a family gathering. And I don't know why I was asking her about her upbringing. I just didn't know much. Mm. And she had shared, which is, you know, A, a huge problem. Yeah. Uh, but B, she started sharing the story of how her her father, I believe, was a World War One veteran mm. and died. And so her family was so poor, she had to go pick cotton with black folks in the fields of Mississippi. Wow. And then she moved to Michigan to be put up into, like, an adoption home. And then, you know, tons and tons of trauma. She experienced her mom marrying abusive folks. Um, you know, the way my grandma talks about those stories is with not a lot of joy but contempt or disdain. Mm. Um, again, more trauma there. But this experience of um, having to work with, you know, what would be considered low as the Negro and having to do that has shaped my family in such a way that when my mom brought home a black man that she wanted to marry, I get a radically different response than a lot of different families that I do these mm. workshops with. Mm. And I think about the ways in which that story, which was not celebrated, which was not heralded, we don't go around at Thanksgiving like, oh, never forget, and Grandma worked with the black folks. Mm-hmm. Um, never forget Grandma Jay. She was with the Negroes. It was just we didn't talk about it. Mm. But that impacted on some level how we saw people of color within my mom's lineage. Mm. And the response to my dad being in space of my family was not one of conflict or bigotry uh, in a way that I see um, you know, other families that I coach and facilitate and lead in conversation, even though they in some of the same context or geographical spaces. So you know, I think we have to really unpack these stories and recognize, because even if your family doesn't have, you know, some sort of like good story about dealing with black people or brown people of any kind, it's so important to recognize where did our families participate in complicit uh, or be complicit in racism. My family definitely was, still is. Uh, they have to wrestle through that. But there's also some ways in which there was moments of solidarity that deeply shaped people. And we probably all have both. Um, we all have to unpack what those things are fully. Yeah, that, I mean, you, you're touching on storytelling now, which is, you, you know, is the heart of the work <laughs> that I do. You know, I love right. storytelling. Uh, and it, it got me thinking about this question, you know, what stories aren't we telling? What stories are going untold in our lives, in our families, with our children? And, and what does it mean to be aware of those? And then to actively work to ensure that they are told. Now, there may be certain stories that you don't want to tell uh, a child at a certain age, but I think there comes a point in which stories need to be passed down and at least mentioned in the family, if for no other reason than to understand the context, right? To mm-hmm. understand why someone is uh, the way they are. You know, the way that m- your grandmother treated your mother is going to affect the way your mother then treats you. And so mm-hmm. if we're not telling stories of our past, then we are only receiving part of the picture. And, and I think um, lack of context is one of the biggest contributors to ignorance and hatred in this world. Uh, and so that's why storytelling is so important. And so 
you know, that made me think about stories that maybe I haven't been telling in my life, stories that my family doesn't tell or doesn't tell well. Um, and, and then it made me wonder if there are stories that you are mindful of and you want to make sure that you are passing down to your daughter. I feel like there's a lot of stories I wanted to know. Mm. Gosh, a lot of stories. I think I can, I can start if that's helpful. Yeah. So, you know, for me, I want to make sure that my child knows that I was adopted, knows what my life before adoption was like. Uh, I want them to know that the, the man who adopted us, my siblings and I, that he himself was adopted. And so to understand the legacy mm-hmm. of adoption that is running through our family, I want my child to know what it has meant for me to feel like, to, to, to be on a dogged search for what is true in my life, only to realize every time I think I found it, that I only have so much more to learn, right? Mm-hmm. And, and for them to understand that cyclical nature of learning and, and self-discovery. And so those are some key narratives from my mm-hmm. life that I, that I want to make sure my child understands because I think it'll help shape their experience. That's good. I think one that I think about is, you know, I don't know if this is a component that you would say is part of your storytelling idea, but to me it's, it's important in the work that we do together is this notion of, like, truth-telling. Mm. Um, and I have seen more and more, just as I become more invested in relationships with people around me, uh, the ways in which families do not tell the full narrative mm-hmm. of experience yeah. or who gets to tell that narrative. And I think about my parents' divorce. You know, there's certain levels of that that my daughter doesn't need to know yet. Mm-hmm. But I don't want to hide the fact from her of the strength of my mother, the determination and grit, um, the power that she harnessed to keep us safe. Mm. Um, I don't want to sugarcoat that story. I don't want it to, because it impacted my narrative at one level, but also like she deserves to know that. Um, And something I wrestle with a lot because both my wife and I's parents are divorced. Her parents are divorced and my parents are divorced. And uh, I think about the ways the individuals in those relationships who caused harm uh, have had either not or have had to wrestle with the implications of that. Mm. And um, I think a lot of times and in a lot of ways, partially because of our legal system, partially because of you know the patriarchal environment we exist in, men who cause harm and trauma in marriages can leave those marriages unbothered mm-hmm. um, or at least not feel the implications of that. Um, I have had to do the work of trying to do truth-telling of my biological father. Um, and it is arduous and hard work that will, until there's ownership of the truth by both parties, um, there will always be a gap in what our relationship can be. Mm. And I don't want to hide why that is from my daughter. Um, I want her to understand that. Um, and I want her to understand what her grandmother has gone through and the strength that she has you know, had to bear and shouldn't have had to bear. Mm. Um, one, so she has respect and understanding. Um, two, so she understands like this is a reality and um, this is not a picture that we want for our future and your future. Um, I don't, I don't know if I should say serve as a warning because I don't think that'll be the case, but I don't know. I just I don't want to 
paint this secondary story or this incomplete story and say, yeah, something happened, but we're here now. Mm. Um, I don't know if that's justice. Mm. Because I don't know if the trauma that my sister and I and my mother experienced can be healed without that full story being owned. Mm. Um, You know, I've moved past it. I've grown through it. I've found many ways of healing. But that relationship with my biological dad can never be made whole until that ownership is done. And subsequently, I don't know if that relationship then can translate to my daughter mm. with wholeness. Yeah, I, I resonate deeply with that. I think about my biological mom and how, where my relationship with her stands now. And it's, I mean, we're cordial, but it's, there's no depth there. You know, there's no safety, there's no trust there. And, and if I'm being honest, I still long for that. I have just resigned myself to believing it's never gonna happen but now that I've got a child coming into the world, I have to ask myself, okay, what type of relationship then will I permit or, or open the door for for my biological mom to have with my child? You know, how do I how do I navigate that, separating my experience from what my child's experience may or may not be? Um, and then what, how much of the narrative do I share with my child and when? Um, and because I think the other part of it, you're right, it doesn't have to be a warning, but I want to help ensure my child doesn't grow up believing some of the same fairy tales and myths mm. that I believed and have yeah. had to work hard to undo. Yeah. And I, I think you know some of that's uh, unavoidable and there's a time where myths and fairy tales are healthy, but I want my child to be able to understand the variety uh, of ways relationship can be expressed. I want them to understand mm-hmm. consent. I want them to, to understand the power in their sexuality without feeling like they have to be ashamed of it or, or hide it or only uh, express it in one narrow context. I want them to understand um, how to accept things and to let go of things. You know, there, there's so many lessons I feel like I am just now learning that I, I want them to be able to learn sooner than I did. And so for me, that's another reason for the storytelling, another reason narrative is important is I think we learn through narrative, at least I've learned a lot through narrative from watching other people, hearing other people's stories and, and kind of getting an idea of what I do or don't want to do. And so I'm trusting that my child will uh, will have the same experience. But, but I think it's going to be tough to navigate, tough to know what stories to tell, what are mine to tell. You know how mm-hmm. to how to express express the truth in a story without co-opting it. You know, it's there's a lot of fine lines yeah. to walk there, mm-hmm. um, but but it feels like important yet difficult work. Right. And then there's this whole issue of moving past just the individual experience or the familial experience and into the system. How do I continue to grapple with systemic oppression and injustice and racism? What is my work in that? How do I help my child then understand their place mm-hmm. in that world as well? Um, and one of the ongoing questions I think that I continue to have as someone who is biracial is, what is my responsibility for uh, white people? Right, like I've got white family members that I love dearly, that I care about, that I probably haven't done a good enough job of cultivating a depth of relationship with and of really explaining my own racial identity journey. Um, We work predominantly with white clientele, unpacking the history of racism, how it affects systems, how it affects religion, how it affects institutions. Um, and, and it's a question I've been holding. At what point should my energy be shifted towards other people of color versus continuing to hold space and, and educate 
um, white folks that really care, that want to do better, but need to know how. Hmm. Um, and I think that question's exacerbated within me because I know that uh, crudely half of me is white, right? And so, so how do I how do I reconcile that? Hmm. And I'm, I'm wondering what your thoughts are about those questions, or if you even hold some of those. Yeah, I guess like, can you define to me what you would say what you would say responsibility is? Mm. I'm thinking, do I have a moral obligation as a leader, as a creator, as a healer, to r- respond whenever people uh, desire to know more, desire to do better? Where, where, where am I responsible to use the gifts that I have, and for whom am I responsible to to mm-hmm. to give them or to offer them? Yeah, yeah, that's an interesting question. I had a had a conversation with my wife recently where there was uh, some anxiety around, you know, I can't change the biases or prejudices in my family. Mm. And, I qu- and I quickly blurted out, that's not your responsibility. Mm. Um, I don't know where that came from, but I, the response I gave to that was, as I was like verbally processing it, was you're responsible for yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't change your, your granddad's thinking. You can't do that. But you are responsible for yourself when you're in a room. If you hear something out of pocket, like you are responsible to the convictions you say you hold. So you got to say something about that. Mm. But you're not responsible for changing his thinking. And I've been trying to hold that more and say, you know, when invited into a space, when I have the energy, when compensated accordingly, uh, when supported or protected accordingly, can I come in and say this? And we, I mean, and I think we have this interesting space with the opportunities we get as as um, facilitators versus like our family. Mm-hmm. I think we have True. to draw a strong line there. Yeah. Um, because those are very different dynamics. So I, I, I just wonder if maybe we, we instead hold the question from the vantage point of what am I responsibility? What is what, what am I responsible to myself for? Mm. And then start asking the questions of what spaces am I in? do those responsibilities actually matter? If I keep telling myself I'm responsible for speaking out for racial justice and I continue to put myself in institutions that are committed injustices against me and other people of color, how, at what point is that on me versus them? Yeah. Uh, if they're, gonna, like they, they're obviously complicit in those things, but like, as you're asking the question of should I redirect those energies, and um, I, just, I always wonder if holding the question a little bit differently is a healthier way to process it mm-hmm. i'm always a fan of reframing a question <laughs> you know me uh and and as you were talking uh, it got me it reminded me of a conversation i had earlier today i i met with another uh woman of color who's a storyteller and a personal coach out in california and she was talking to me about how she spent some time working in the nonprofit world and at some point she realized that she, uh, she wanted to move more into social justice work, but she looked around and she noticed that all these other people of color, all these other community organizers were experiencing burnout. And so it, it helped her realize that part of the work of activism, actually maybe the first work of activism, is responsibility for self, is taking care of the self. And, and, and that seems like it resonates deeply with what you're saying. Mm-hmm. And then it triggered some learning that I've been doing in myself the last couple of weeks. I've, I've recently become aware that for much of my life, I have operated 
uh, out of a specific narrative. I've, I've had this idea that I had to be this perfect, loving, good guy slash hero in every relationship I have. Like, that's what I have to be. Mm. If I screw up, if I hurt people intentionally or unintentionally, then I am the personification of evil or a bad guy, which in my mind was my now deceased abusive stepfather. Sure. Like that's that's the sure. model I have for a bad guy. Right. It's either one or the other. I, I'm either perfect and saving folks or I am hurting and abusing them. Right. You know? And so I'm now doing the work to A, recognize how that narrative affects the choices I do or don't make um, and all the ways, the, all the ripples that it creates in my life. Um, but I'm also doing the work of, of rediscovering and recrafting the narratives that mm. I do want to live into. And so I think your comment also touched on this question of what narratives are we telling about ourselves and, and what stories are we living into? Because the stories you tell will manifest over and over again, yeah. right? Yeah. And so uh, I'm wondering, as you've heard me talking, as you reflect uh, either regarding your race, your identity, whatever, are there specific stories that you have been telling about yourself or that you've recently become aware of that you now want to deconstruct uh, for something healthier? I, maybe, I think so. I Maybe just telling the story of, with more flesh to it that's you know mm-hmm. I, I tell a lot of the same stories I facilitate a lot of the same sort of spaces and I always speak to this um, experience these experiences I had in college particularly Mike Brown was murdered mm-hmm. um, and what his death and like so many other black individuals sparked and triggered within me uh, again beat at this historically white liberal arts college and I usually just tell that story but that process you know, unlocked some things that uh, childhood trauma had, you know, held me down in. Mm. Um, you know, you talk about this narrative of, of either being a, a good person or being your abusive stepfather. I had a similar narrative mm. um, to where, particularly with how I understood my blackness and understood my masculinity, um, as it being uh, a th- like I at any point could slide into what my dad became or mm-hmm. was mm-hmm. Um, you know physically emotionally psychologically abusive you know angry easily triggered and I think about the ways like this this work of ju- social justice this work of racial identity this work of racial equity has freed me to allow myself to experience anger mm-hmm. where I had grown up tr- either losing control of it because I had tamped it down so much and just exploding or not allowing myself to experience it at all and now allowing myself to exhibit anger and knowing that I can do so in a way that's not going to cause harm or damage um, allowing myself to raise my voice and speak strongly and firmly and recognize that people may view me as like an angry black guy but that doesn't mean I'm my dad Mm. or acting as I've seen my dad do Mm. Um, so as you're telling that story, I think about the ways in which I should retell or tell on a deeper level, um, the ways in which my kind of racial identity awakening was a holistic shift for Mm. me. It wasn't just, I understood race, but as I understood masculinity on a deeper level, Mm. um, I understood, uh, relationship and pain and how to deal with those things in a way that I had for fear of becoming what I was so afraid of becoming, mm. didn't allow myself to feel the fullness of, of the range of emotions I have. Mm. Man, that's powerful. And that resonates very deeply with me. I, I've gone through something similar and um, be, 
becoming more connected with my body, becoming more connected with my emotions and recognizing that expressing them is not bad. Actually, it is required to do the healing that I want to do. And so thank mm. you for for sharing that. Um, and I imagine that's work that will continue for you because I have found trauma to be layered, you know, and it, it the, the more I dig into one level, the more aware I become of the next level. And, uh, and so I don't know, I doubt I'll ever get to the place where I'm through all the layers, but I am encouraged that we can keep accessing, we continue accessing, continue drilling down layer by layer, and each day becoming more of who we want to be and, and healing ourselves and those around us in the process. I'm thankful for that. Mm-hmm. We often get the chance to facilitate workshops, and, and sometimes when you're facilitating, you can't quite be as candid as you want to be, <laughs> or uh, there are things you want to say, content you want to put in, but you only have so much time. Um, and so, you know, for the 50 or so people that I think listen to this each week. <laughs> you mean you don't know? Uh, is there is there something you, you would want to say to uh, white folks that are serious about doing this work and that are trying to be responsible allies to people of color that are doing the work of deconstructing racism and, and, and healing themselves each and every day? Is there mm-hmm. a couple things that come to mind that you'd want to say to either or, or both groups that you don't get to say often enough? So I would say for both people of color and white folks, um, really uh, questioning, are you pursuing the narratives that make it hard for you to love yourself mm. and all of the parts of yourselves? Um it's odd. I've, I've seen a lot of people of color do this work who actually like don't like black women or black mm-hmm. people in general. Yep. Uh, but they're black themselves, and it's fascinating. Yep. You know, there's churches who get facilitation or guidance from someone who says you need a you need a Carlton to get the Will Smith in the mm-hmm. room. And that's like a deeply racist mm-hmm. construct. I'm not even going to unpack it. You can catch that on the way home. Um, <laughs> and like. If that's how people are doing this work, it's not sustainable for themselves or it's harmful to others. Mm. And then for white folks, I, I find a lot of white folks who really care about this, but it, they're driven by guilt or shame. Mm. So a lot of the, you've heard this question asked in workshops is, what do you love about being white? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and not just like, what do you, what systemic benefits do you love? But like of your skin and your hair and your eyes uh, and your voice and your narrative, like what do you love about yourself? Because in the midst of all the pain caused by white supremacy, in the midst of all the, uh, and I don't just mean whiteness as the social construct, but just like the you know, aesthetics and reality of who you are as a person, which also includes more deeply your ethnic identity. Mm-hmm. Um, most folks do this work and have still hold, a, white folks do this work and hold a, a, an immense amount of shame over themselves. And I've even seen self-hate. And I, and I, I'm confident, you know, the creator made you who you are. You know, there was no sort of divine mix-up where you didn't get any melanin splashed on your skin. Like, Oops, send them through. Uh, I don't you know. know. I, logic, I feel like. <laughs> <laughs> logic is quick to remind you uh, he is biracial. Uh, goodness. Uh, it might be the title of his next album. Right. Y'all forget I'm mixed. <laughs> Uh, gosh, you just need to spend some time in the sun and leave us alone. Right. Us these, Let it go, Logic. Right. Let it go. Give us these rap bars. Don't give us these unmixed bars. Anyways, um, you know, really getting people to, particularly white folks, getting to a point where you love yourself mm. um, and all of the parts of yourselves. Um, 
and learning to differentiate between your systemic benefits and your inerrant identity. Mm. Um, that is a huge thing. And then I think the other part is what are your what are your spiritual influences? I recognize that not everyone who's a listener identifies as a Christian. As a Christian, totally cool, um, and and I respect uh, whatever journey that you're on, but. We are all inhabiting and embodying, even folks who are atheists, some sort of deeper um, narratives of the purpose of life and self and identity. And my my question is, you know, what is shaping that? Is what is influencing that? And are the influences on those things giving you a more expansive heart towards the world um, and helping you embrace more people? Or are they helping you draw more lines in the sand um, and helping you draw more barriers? And these folks are on the outside. Even folks like, there's this challenge um, that I think I've had to wrestle with is, as you know, as a Christian, you know, there is a, uh, I have this very, I think, expansive notion of uh, if, you know, we, we enter into this afterlife place and we identify as heaven, who gets to go there? And, you know, I don't sit in this position that only Christians will go to heaven. I think there are devout Muslims and Hindus and Buddhists and uh, all sorts of different faith journeys um, who will arrive at that point. But what about slave masters? Um, Mm. And what about slaveholders? I realize as I process that I don't want them there. Mm. Um, And I don't know if that's the best posture to have. Mm. Um, that doesn't mean I have to ignore or not acknowledge what they've done. But, like, I find that I'm the one drawing the lines on who is okay and who is not. Um, I'm the one that I'm finding moral kind of ground. I'm defining that moral grounding for who is okay and who is not. Um, and I just can consistently convicted, like, yo, I am... I'm the one who's doing this defining of who's good and who's bad. And I don't know if that's a good thing for me. Mm. Um, I can get a lot of people to agree that that our current sitting president is not a good dude. That's Mm -hmm. not a huge moral leap to make. No. It's scientific fact at this point. Yeah, like it's not a big deal. And that's cool. But if I start talking about, you know, eternal location and like, I think I can get the same amount of people to agree on that. Mm -hmm. Okay. But, like, if we keep going down that line, okay, if he hanging in, what about, uh, you know, Jonathan Edwards, mm. slaveholder, mm. pastor, though? Mm. Like, who gets to define these things? Yeah. And I realize that some of the theological narratives or spiritual narratives I have historically, you know, taken bites out of are quick to define that for me yeah. and quick to point out who doesn't get in. And I find myself in the last three years in a space of consistently reminded of the inclusivity and depth of embrace that the divine has for all of humanity and all of creation. And I move away from quit trying to define who is in and who is out mm. and, and start calling people in to, to love and to grace. That is not to mean to say I'm going to go hang out with racists because I'm not going to spend my time doing that. <laughs> um, but it is to say that I am not going to spend a lot of psychic, spiritual energy on creating this framework of who is in and out of the love of the divine, um, which has subsequently called me into a deeper love for people that I normally would not find myself in spaces in. So when we are doing trainings, 
in places where people are identifying of deeply racist narratives and people are unpacking deeply racist things that they define as truth i am not finding that i have i have less bitterness resentment even hatred in my heart i actually find more love and grace and compassion and empathy um and a desire for them to lean in and for me not to push them away it's weird but it also has made me feel like this work becomes sustainable that way mm. uh, in a way that it wasn't two years ago, three years ago. I don't know if that makes any sense. It, it does. And um, I think the journey towards sustainability and towards the vastness of love that you're speaking about is, is crucial. Um, I think as we can d- begin to do that, then it also helps us offer grace to ourselves. You know, mm. this week... I've been thinking about ways that I have messed up, people I have hurt because uh, I've lived into these false narratives, and it, it sucked. I was just became aware of how messy I am sometimes, and um, and it I was really down about it, and then it hit me that I needed to realize this so that I could fully uh, appreciate what is grace and what is love, right? To have not even just the idea of God love me, but have other people love me, right? even though... I am messy, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and to recognize that I can still name myself as good and, and beautiful, even though I am messy, and even though I think problematic things or do problematic things or I uh, lie to myself, or, you know, like whatever, mm-hmm. that love and grace are still available. I think that is when you begin to work sustainably. And once you can do that for others, you can do it for yourself and vice versa. You know, once you accept your own mess, then it's a lot easier to look upon someone else's mess with love. That doesn't mean you don't name it as wrong or problematic, but you're doing so from a place of love um, and a desire for them to experience the grace and goodness that you're experiencing rather than a desire for punishment or punitive action uh, to be taken. And I think those are two very different uh, motivators. Mm-hmm. And side note, there are explanations of what happens after death that fall in line with this vast inclusivity. You know, so personally, I don't believe in a, a hell. So the question of who's in and who's out it actually doesn't even matter to me. Um, and, and so I say that to say for those that might be struggling and wondering how their theology uh, can hold a radically inclusive love or what to do with certain sections of scripture, uh, there are plenty of people that have been thinking about this far longer than Josh or I have. Uh, great, uh, wise teachers that you can look into, that you can read about. Um, and there are ways of understanding God and, and life and even death that speak to this inclusivity uh, even uh, more poetically than, than I think either of us can. So I like to um, end my shows by asking my guests to leave the audience with a phrase, a question, a, a short, simple practice that they can, they can incorporate throughout their week after they've listened to this mm-hmm. to help drive home some of the messages that we've talked about. And so as you think about all that we've discussed, we've discussed uh, apparently now the afterlife. <laughs> we've, Didn't expect that one. Right. Uh, we've discussed racial identity. We've discussed loving yourself, doing self-sustaining work telling untold stories so as you think about all these themes that we've talked about and touched on is there a simple practice affirmation or question you would invite the listeners to hold there has been i just finished a book uh wild mercy maribastar uh go pick that up uh it's fire and she quotes a number of feminine don't, mystics don't be doing free plugs on my show <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, I, I don't I don't know her personally, so it's it's really it really is a free plug. Let me let me chill. Um, but she quotes uh, Juliana Norwich, who has been this really like powerful contemplative to me. I don't know if you're familiar with mm-hmm. Julian. Uh, I had to Google her quote just so I don't butcher it. But there's this um, uh, quote that that she is speaking. Um, she keeps having these visions with God. Uh, and in this quote, she says, and uh, in this, God showed me a little thing, the quantity of a hazelnut lying in the palm of my hand, as it seemed. And as round as any ball, I looked upon it with an eye of my understanding and thought, what may this be? Uh, and the answer was generally, it is all that is made. And then it goes on, um, you know, she, she identifies that she sees three properties. The first is that God made it. The second is that God loves it. And the third is that God keeps it. Mm. And um, I, I always have this, I've been invited into this practice of really, whether it be with breathing or writing, um, God has made it. God loves it and God sustains it. And that it is you, it's me, it's all of creation that in the midst of uh, the the divine, everything fits this quantity of a hazelnut. I don't know. I've, I have this this incredible sense of relief of falling into the depth of the, of the divine and the creator, um, and just being reminded, especially in, in difficult seasons, uh, that I fall into those hands, um, and and Mother God holds me close, uh, and remind that I'm made, I'm loved, and I'm held, taken care of. So. My invitation is for listeners to do that exercise and see what comes up, what narratives are keeping you from believing that, what narratives are keeping you from understanding that, um, what narratives challenge that idea, what narratives about self, the divine, creation, and others uh, do you struggle struggle to love um, and see as good? Thank you, Josh. Uh, if people want to get in touch with you or Growing Edge Consulting, are there what what services? are offered and how would they find information about those yeah so we do a a, almost a narrative-based racial equity training like to focus on our own stories um, as well as doing power analysis of larger systems Um, you know we we are flexible with how these workshops are set up and we do coaching as well Ben mentioned in the beginning we work with churches faith communities as well as as local nonprofits um, we can be reached at growingedgeindy at gmail.com. Indy is I-N-D-Y. Um, we're always looking to expand you know, who we're engaging with and connecting with. Um, we really do believe in the power of these stories, recognizing that, uh, as uh, Brother Rich Perez says, Jesus in our heart, or whatever you identify as being in your heart, but also granddad in our bones, um, that we carry these narratives, uh, the trauma and the beauty of them. Uh, and it's incredibly important that we recognize that day-to-day impact, that our day-to-day impact in systems to be able to interrupt and disrupt these these challenges that we have to overcome to, to stop racism. Man, amen. Thanks for being on this week, Josh. I've appreciated this conversation, and as always, man, I appreciate you. Absolutely, homie. I appreciate you having me on. It is uh, what a jump from listener to uh, guest. Wow. <laughs> Honored. Ah, you're funny. <laughs> All right, man. Thank you for listening to episode 21 of the Invisible Truths podcast. If you enjoyed this interview with Josh Riddick, you can find the links to the Growing Edge Collective in the episode description, 
As always, please check out the Patreon page to see what crazy topic Josh and I discussed after this interview. And if you haven't done so already, make sure you subscribe and leave a five-star review. That way others can find this podcast as well. Once again, thanks for listening to Invisible Truths. Until next week, I'm Ben Tapper.